Hello and welcome to Is This Anime? I am your quote-unquote anime expert, Jack Metcalf. And join us uh, is the return of Malcolm already. Malcolm, how are you? I'm good. How are you? It, it doesn't feel that long. It doesn't feel that long. We were just doing one piece uh, and you're already back. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. We were like, oh, we're going to do, I'll be back on like special occasions. Honestly, though, I think it was a special occasion. Judging by like, you know, if you're listening to this episode, you know what we're covering. It's like, of course I had to be back for, you know, what might be Miyazaki's last movie ever. Absolutely. And I mean, this was the first for both of us. Uh, we had never seen any Ghibli movies in theaters before. I mean, the last one that was uh, released. I mean, I guess we could have gone to theater revivals. But again, the last one that was officially released was 2013, The Wind Rises. Yeah, and I was definitely not on the, you know, Studio Ghibli uh, or Ghibli, however. I feel like everyone pronounces it differently. Uh, you know, I was not on the train. I It was a world that I was not familiar with. So, of course, I would not have even known that the wind rises uh, existed. Or maybe I would have, but I would have been like, ah, well, it's, you know, it's Japanese. I'm not going to see it. Yeah, it's a, it's a Japanese cartoon. And I mean, to be fair, not a lot of people saw it in North America. Uh, the Wind Rises, it may, made only $5 million in its total American release. This movie has already made well over $10 million in its opening. Uh, and actually, this is the first time in U.S. box office history where uh, two foreign language films held the top two slots in the box office. Uh, this and Godzilla Minus One. It's kind of incredible. Like, I, I love seeing this. Like, I love the fact. I mean, I think it's both an indictment on, like, North American studios and what they're making right now. But I also think it's, like, such a celebration that, like, I think people are just looking for great movies to watch. And especially from, like, Masters of the Craft. And I feel like, you know, this movie. And then, obviously, I haven't seen, as of this recording, Godzilla Minus One. But I've only heard good things from that about that movie, so it's really cool to see this. Absolutely, um, and in fact, correction, it is it opened to twelve point eight million. I'm on the Hollywood Reporter right now, so that's the the official total. Wild stuff, and I mean, you, you know, I'll, I'll just just to lean right into it, how can something like the Marvels be considered a bomb when it opens to fifty million, whereas this is considered a sex success with like you know. 13 million. Um, the issue is obviously uh, the Marvels had the the marketing uh, machine of Disney and Marvel, whereas this was distributed by G Kids, who do not have that much of a, you know, th their marketing is really dependent on people just loving Ghibli movies. Um, they don't have the kind of budget to, to put on a bunch of Instagram ads or television ads for this. Yeah, like I don't think I saw, to be honest, I did see the trailer that was released um, online. But I didn't see, like, it's not like you're watching, like, YouTube and then, like, an ad comes on and it's the trailer for The Boy and the Heron. It's, you know, this is not what you're getting. But I think there's so much word of mouth. There's so much, like, excitement. Like, I think, like, I mean, we'll talk about it a little further. But, like, you know, even, like, some of the cast members where it's, like, there's people who are seeing bit parts who would normally be starring in their own, like, movie or voicing the lead in like a lesser animated film, but they wanted to be a part of this project so badly that they were like, I will do anything. It's like George Clooney voicing the dogs. I think his name is Sparky on like South Park because he was like, I want to be on South Park. And, but this is, you know, not as degrading. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, th this mm. film is an achievement. Uh, mm. e even yesterday when we saw it together, I was like, shit, man, I don't want to fucking talk about this with you quite yet because I just need to gather my thoughts on on what we saw. And I mean, you know, our, our intro thoughts, a uh, friend of the show, Anthony, he also saw it and, and his interpretation was more simple. He was just like, boy, this is trippy as fuck. I think that's what a lot of people are saying. Like, I did, like, look up, like, last night after uh, coming home from seeing the movie uh, and it was, like, just kind of on YouTube just seeing how people reacted. And, like, there are a lot of YouTube videos where they're, like, Studio Ghibli's weirdest movie yet. You know, I've never seen a weirder movie, which I'm, like, <clears throat> I'm, like, I think this is a bit of a tell that you haven't seen a lot of, like, Miyazaki movies because there is, except for, I guess, from my memory, The Wind Rises, you know, there is like fantastical parts to it, but it almost like I will. We could get in a little further, but like I, I almost got like some vibes of like paprika kind of thrown in here a bit um, at certain points in this movie. Like you could kind of feel that, but I also just thought it was such a wholly original idea and vision. And I was just like, he's Miyazaki is such a technical master of his craft, and you can just see that like expertise on display. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're saying even better than I could, but I think that's the thing. There, there's a lot of recurring themes in this movie from his other work. I mean, you haven't seen Howl's movie Castle or Spirited Away, but there's, there's certainly similarities between those films and this. I do think, and I guess we can talk spoiler-free impressions in, in the event that there's any listeners who, because again, this only came out a wide release like two days ago. So um, yeah, we're kind yeah, of doing like an instant reaction here. Like we, we were like, we saw it uh, with our, uh, our friend Anthony and then we we're, you know, I was like, I told Jack, I was like, I think we got to record an episode. <laughs> like, like we got to do this. Absolutely. So yeah, I think we could do like our, our spoiler free reactions and then we could, can do our usual breakdown of the story. But certainly like my, my spoiler free impressions were of course, like, first of all, I need to digest this. It does suffer, maybe not the word suffer is the right word, but I do think it does have that kind of meandering pace towards the middle. You know, I was definitely riveted at the beginning and uh, certainly the the first like 20 minutes are very intense, especially by Ghibli standards. Like you're seeing some very intense visuals, um, some, some things that happen that definitely uh, elicit a, a response from the audience, I felt. Would you agree? I do agree with that. Like I found like, yeah, they, I had a, a writing teacher once. Uh, their name is Paul Ellor. And they said they're like, middles are hard. And I kind of feel like that applied to this movie where there, I will be honest, there was like a moment where I feel like I kind of like almost drifted off to sleep for like five, five minutes, five, maybe 10 minutes. I didn't like feel like I lost anything. I was like kind of in and out. But yeah, there was just like a moment where maybe it was because I was like so tranquil and like it was so cerebral. Uh, but then I was I got like rehooked back into it. So then I was like woken up again. And the thing was, is Anthony, who was also watching the movie with us, he had the same experience where he seemed like he went out for a little bit and then came back in kind of around the same time as me. So yeah. like I th and I think that's something that I think I could see a lot of people having. I was kind of almost disappointed myself because like it's so funny because like i've seen like in the last few weeks uh we both have seen like napoleon and killers of the flower moon and those are like very long movies but i never had that moment in those movies but this movie did so i was a little upset with myself that like that happened to me and this movie is shorter than those other two movies i just listed yeah. 
Yeah, it's only but two I, hours. It's a tight two. Yeah, but I think it's part of it is sort of its design and the way it's illustrated. Like it kind of can, it kind of almost lulls you into a dream state, which yeah. is yeah. Uh, I was gonna say that too. Yeah, the the dream logic. Yeah, like you said, it it, it lulls you in. I feel. Um, let's get into the history segment uh, too. Uh, so basically, Miyazaki he retired, quote unquote retired, because again, he's done this. He's done here's this the thing. I don't believe. Here's the thing. I don't believe any filmmaker. Same with like most actors, actresses, even writers, uh, fully can go into retirement. I think there's always a calling. I think there's always just like a thing where you're like. You're going to be sitting around. You're going to be like, yeah, I have retired. And then you're going to, then they usually like start going like, I have an idea for a thing. And then they start building onto it. And then all of a sudden it's just like, shit, I got to make this. And I think this is exactly what happened to Miyazaki here. Like he was just like, I'm done. And then he was like, actually, I have another thing I need to say. But yeah, keep yeah, going. 100%. So yeah, after, after his alleged uh, retirement back in 2013, um, he then changed his mind after he was working on a short film called Boro the Caterpillar. Uh, so, which again, even his retirement is kind of bullshit because he, even after he retires, he he still does a short film. But that that's the Miyazaki way. So, storyboarding uh, for The Boy and the Heron it began in July 2016, and producer Toshio Suzuki formally announced the film in February of 2017. Full production of the film officially started mid 2017. And Miyazaki claimed he wanted to release the film in time for the 2020 Olympics in Japan, which obviously did not happen. Although they said COVID wasn't responsible per se for the delays. It was just, uh, they said production actually went pretty uh, smooth during their COVID time, which is kind of interesting. I could see that. I feel like there's probably like an efficiency and it sounded like it was like a smaller team behind this movie. Like there was, I read somewhere where it was like at one point it was like 60 animators who are working on this. So it's like, I guess that can streamline the process. It's like, you know, I think a lot of movies nowadays, especially animated movies can have teams of like hundreds, if not like a thousand people kind of working on different parts. But you know, for Miyazaki, it's probably a, a smaller, more intimate team. Yeah. I mean, we've heard the horror stories about across the spider verse, which is a film we both really liked, but uh, it seems it's, the, it's the movie. It, that's the movie that like, if there's going to be an upset because I think this movie, like again, the non-spoiler territory, I think this movie has a very good shot at winning best animated feature at the Academy Awards just because yeah. it's, I don't see like another animated movie really beating it. Like there's like Pixar hasn't really done anything recently where you're like, yeah, that's the one, you know, I think into the spider verse, like two has a very good shot because it's such a visually Aggressive movie, but I think you have to reward Miyazaki. It's kind of like how I kind of feel like Scorsese has a very good chance at the at the same Academy Awards winning Best Director. You're sort of like, all right, you know, there was a couple of movies where he should have won, and now he's going to win this one. Yeah, and I mean, I think Across the Spider Verse, by virtue of also being a sequel, that probably harms it. And I think there's also a superhero burnout in general that maybe didn't exist when Spider-Verse came out, but now has already seemed to, to seep in. And certainly by the time of the actual award ceremony, it'll probably be in there too. That's true. Even though it, I will say that, the side note, tangent, uh, Into the Spider-Verse is probably the best superhero movie I saw this year 
besides Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Yeah, both really good movies. But uh, yeah, that, that film had a, a much more tortured production, it seems. The, yeah. the people behind it uh, were, were changing their minds a lot. And obviously, I am satisfied with the choices they made in that movie. But it seems like it was a, a far more chaotic production than this. Yeah, exactly. Where here, it's like Miyazaki clearly had a vision and he kind of just stuck to it and he saw it through. Yeah, and he's working with people who he's who he's known for forever and stuff too. Um, so anyway, well, yeah, and I feel like it's like also the culture of Japan where there's like probably so much reverence and respect for Miyazaki that you get a lot of people who would probably forego their own projects just so that they could say that they worked with him. Absolutely. Uh, so this film was also in financed uh, in part by Studio Ghibli streaming their films on Netflix. Uh, this was something they had apparently resisted for a long time, but they were like, well, shit, we need money to finish this movie. So that's what actually, uh, resulted in that deal. So that's interesting. Well, I'd rather work with Netflix and the Weinstein company. So, <laughs> oh yeah, it's... yeah, they did do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, maybe he did know who the fuck does. Uh, anyways, bad joke. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, for those who don't know, there's a, an infamous story that Miyazaki was one of the few people who were like Hollywood adjacent. Um, who had to work with uh, Harvey Weinstein, who basically told him to go fuck himself when he was trying to make changes to the movie. Yeah, uh, Miyazaki, very much proven correct. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, production on this film ultimately spanned seven years, with two and a half comprising pre-production and five years in full. Uh, the film infamously released with no trailers prior to its Japanese release, Although Miyazaki himself wasn't a fan of this idea, it was actually uh, producer Toshio Suzuki who came up with the tactic. So it's a really interesting one because, like, before I was assuming it was Miyazaki's idea, like, before he came out and was like, I didn't come up with this idea. I was like, this is kind of a genius thing. Like, last movie from potentially from a historical, like, a historic filmmaker, no trailer. It's just going to show up on this date, buy your tickets. There's like a very, like, almost crude drawing as the poster which is of the heron and that's it i was like i kind of love that like we're like there is a thing right now with a lot of trailers that i notice where i feel like they just kind of tell you the whole story before you're even seeing the movie and i try to avoid certain trailers because of that like i don't really watch marvel trailers you know i don't like as like i watch like the teasers but i try to like keep myself kind of in the dark same with like maybe movies i really like um after the teaser but yeah there's sometimes where you're like oh i see the whole plot for sure but, yeah and even me like uh the first footage of this i saw was like just from a tiktok and it was just like a poorly shot tiktok compilation of just random scenes and to me that was like you know it felt underground it was like uh the days of 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 cam movie trailers which i actually liked i liked that way of uh that yeah. being my first look at the film I also like that. Like, that's kind of cool as well, where you're just like, oh, it's, what is this? You know, like, oh, this, you know, it's like shot, like, in the movie theater. Yeah. Remember, the, like, when those used to be a big thing on YouTube? Like, when it, sure. it would be from, like, Comic-Con, and it'd be, like, oh, yeah. the, the special screening. And nowadays, it's like, they're dropping, they're going to do the Comic-Con trailer release, and then they're going to drop the trailer, like, two hours later online. And I'm like, yeah. no, go back to, like, you only showed it to Comic Con. Now you're gonna hold the trailer for a month, like it's a trailer for the trailer. Like I, that's stuff. I think that's like what's missing in Hollywood. They're like, there's this constant thing of like, we gotta feed the algorithm. We gotta, and it's like actually holding back sometimes is gonna be the best for going forward. 
Uh, so Suzuki, he, he's claimed the film is Miyazaki's most personal one. The film was inspired by Miyazaki's childhood because he endured the firebombing of Japan during World War II, and his father was director of the family's aircraft manufacturing uh, factory. And Suzuki claims that Mahito is uh, Miyazaki. The great uncle is the late Ghibli co-founder, uh, co-founder Isao Takahata, and the heron is uh, Toshio Suzuki himself. Uh, and and for reference, Takahata is the person who first hired Miyazaki as an animator, and he helped him develop his skills as an artist. Um, whereas the, the heron's relationship with Mahito resembles the one between Miyazaki and Suzuki, where they don't give in to each other and they kind of push and pull. So Takahata, he died in 2018 due to lung cancer, and his death had a deep impact on the film. Uh, Miyazaki was forced mm. to scale back the role of the great uncle in the story, who had previously been more central to the boy's life. And it actually took a year after his passing before Miyazaki could even draw the character into the storyboards. Um, this is from Suzuki. He said, after Takahata passed away, he wasn't able to continue with that story, so he changed the narrative, and it became the relationship between the boy and the heron. And in his mind, initially, the heron was something that symbolizes the eeriness of the mansion and that tower, even om ominous, that he goes into uh, during wartime. But he changed it to this sort of budding friendship between the boy and the heron. You can tell there's like a lot of deep, deep personal likeness to this movie. Like it's just there's a lot of emotion in this film. Yeah, I think. For me, at least, uh, obviously, Mahito is Miyazaki, but I guess I also saw the great uncle as Miyazaki as well. And that um, during the final scene, that definitely felt like uh, Miyazaki passing the film down to his grandchildren uh, and, and his own son, Goro. I guess we're still in spoiler yeah. territory. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, we're kind of, yeah, now we're just entering spoilers, but that's fine. Um, see the movie. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised if you're listening to this before seeing the movie, but. If you haven't, there are some slight spoilers here, but I can I can totally see how that death affected would, this movie. Even though it's interesting that he's you know having these reactions, given he's like eighty one. I guess he's eighty one now, but he was like in a seven. I guess he would have been like, what did he say? Twenty ten was when he started like. Uh, no, he didn't start working this officially until twenty sixteen. So if he's like eighty, he's eighty one now. Yeah. Okay, so he was like early seventies. Yeah, so he's like seven. He's like seventy-five-ish when he's like working on it. Takahata dies when he's around uh, seventy-five or something. Okay, yeah, um, I guess that he's still yeah, be affected by that for sure. And he was obviously you know a, a very personal friend to him, and you know, uh, uh, Takahata also directed the film Grave of the Fireflies, which is easily one of the most depressing films ever made. <laughs> Uh, it's the the film about the two children trying to survive the firebombing of Japan. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, you man. haven't seen that one. I haven't it's, seen that. It's a it's a heavy. But I one. have heard of it. I think yeah, we we talked about maybe covering it. It's it's definitely the most famous of the non Miyazaki Ghibli movies for sure. Yeah, and again, like I mean, this movie. I mean, should we get into spoilers? Or are we gonna keep? I'll, I've I'll got a, I've got a bit more uh, behind right. the scenes. Stuff yeah, you keep going. Suzuki said, the most surprising thing for me was when I saw the storyboard for when Mahito was asked by his great uncle to carry on with his work, his legacy, and he says no, he declines the offer. Uh, Miyazaki was someone who followed the path of Takahata for so many years, and I thought it was a huge thing for him to follow a different path. So again, that's the relationship between Miyazaki and Takahata. Um, the recording process for this dub didn't even start until September of 2023, so literally like two months ago. 
uh that's insane that that was like they just did the dub like kind of like right in the middle of the the, like the seg actress strikes yeah like they i think they got um a special permission there's a permission regarding dubbing uh obviously celebrities aren't used to doing that um because again all celebrities are working on you know studio uh major studio films but yeah there there's some loophole that g kids was able to to use because of the fact that it was like a foreign dubbing project that makes sense um, and also like i mean it's it's studio uh ghibli so i feel like it's one of those things where also all these actors were going to jump through hoops to be a part of the movie like oh, everything i've heard about robert pattinson now how he got involved is like that guy was like prepared to do like an eight audition cycle round to go get this part. Oh, you're already, you're already ahead of me, but yeah, he basically did that. Uh, so (laughs) um, G kids present, uh, Dave, uh, just sat, he was told by Ghibli that the casting process for this film was really, was a really important aspect in regards to how they conceived this movie as being a love letter to the studio. And as it was perhaps the final Miyazaki film, there would be effectively cameos from people that audience might recognize as voice actors from previous films. So it was a big deal uh, for Ghibli that the actor who played Howl and Howl's Moving Castle returned as Mojito's father, and they told him it would be great if they were able to do a similar stunt. So they tried as much as possible with people who had appeared in previous dubs. Obviously, Christian Bale is, is Christian Bale and Arpats are the biggest names. I mean, Florence Pugh also, but Christian Bale is certainly the, the biggest name in this film. Uh, he returns to the Ghibli verse after playing the lead of Howl. So they managed to get that uh, to happen. Willem Dafoe and Dan Stevens had worked on films by Miyazaki's son, Goro, and they have roles in this too. Mark Hamill plays the pivotal role of the great uncle after playing the villain in Castle in the Sky. Uh, Karen Fukuhara of The Boys had frequently reminded her representation that she wanted to play a part, any part in a Miyazaki film. And when the call finally came the actress was getting ready to attend a concert uh done by the composer of this movie joe hisashi um so she wound up landing one of the film's most crucial roles which fulfilled a dream she had since uh, watching ghibli movies with her mom as a child unbelievable like what is what a serendipitous moment to be like i'm going to the concert like of the composer like like you know one of those kind of like at the orpheums style things and then you're getting the call being like hey yeah you're going to be the you're going to voice lady Hemi. like you're going to be this is going to be a big role for you yeah and it's funny too i was reading about this uh karen fukuhara uh she she speaks japanese fluently and they actually had to re-record her dialogue halfway through the process because uh she was she was mimicking the performance of the japanese actress so well that they were actually like, okay, this is almost like stilted. And it's like, you know, you're doing a great job and you clearly have respect for what we're doing, but we actually need this performance to be more you and also for an American audience. That's so fascinating. Cause yeah, like you'd think like with knowing that she can do the Japanese like version as well as the English version, like I think there's a lot of times where you hear stories where it's like, oh, they, you know, this actress who's bilingual, did the you know say did the like french you know dub and is in the english movie so you'd think like maybe she would have been cast in the japanese side of the like production as well but no she's just in the english side i mean it also didn't help that you know they they didn't start work on this until the end of august like that's how late in the game this was so the movie was already done yeah i guess they must have gotten it done just as just like probably days before the tiff premiere 
Um, so I, or did I the tip premiere even have a dub? No, the tip premiere did not have a dub. So they finished the act, the, the dubbing process finished like two weeks into October. Holy crap. <laughs> I will say there was a moment, there's a couple of lines in the beginning of the movie by one of the characters. I'm thinking it might've been Natsuko where I kind of found like there was an audio issue. Like I kind of felt like she was quiet compared to the actor playing uh, Mahito Maki. I kind of, and I don't know if I was the only one who picked this up, but yeah. I was like, sort of like, is it me or is this like a sound mixing issue or was this like a projection issue? Like, was there a corruption on the file at the theater? But I can see how like, because it's been put together so quickly that there would be some like missteps and I wouldn't be the most surprised like when this movie's released, I guess, digitally, once it's on Netflix or, you know, gets the Blu-ray that they tweak that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Dave just that he initially wanted Danny DeVito to play the Heron, but the folks at Ghibli told him that in the Japanese, he was being played by a hot 30-year-old singer-actor named Masaki Suda. So <laughs> they were that's their vision. And I, I I mean, I do think it's funny that, of course, the Heron, who is just this hideous, uh, hideous character, is being voiced by a very attractive person. That's just a funny thing, of course. Yeah. I mean, let's be real, though. Robert Pattinson was kind of a perfect, like, casting choice because he went for it like he is doing a great job as the gray heron like he he does he does first of all he doesn't even sound like rob pattinson like he does sound like a raw you know like a danny devito type like For it sure. does it is a crazy like voice performance but i think it also goes to this theory that i have that there are certain like every generation there's like a weirdo actor who also happens to be kind of hot who only wants to do weird shit. And I'm like, right now we've got like three of them, like in this kind of current batch of movie stars, we have Robert Pattinson who does like, he'll like, he's doing the Batman. We were taught, we talked about this off mic yesterday, but like Rob Pattinson is like, he's smart enough to know that he like celebrity comes in cycles. So he's like doing his Batman arc right now so that he can then go off and do like weird indie movies to his heart's content. Jake Gyllenhaal does the same thing. Like he's another guy who's like wants to do all these like cerebral things and then he'll like pop up in Spider-Man, like uh no way or not, yes, Spider-Man Far From Home. And then like I think the third one is Chris Pine. I think Chris Pine is slowly becoming that next guy who's like again wants to do weird things, wants to do music. He's in Dungeons and Dragons, but he's not like the like the heartthrob character. He's like, I'm the idiot bard. <laughs> like I think that kind of stuff is great and yeah the fact is it's like it's a it works because pattinson completely commits to being the gray heron and i have a feeling that masaki suda i just looked up his name is probably doing a very similar thing but in japan where he's like i get that i'm hot but i want to play the weirdo yeah absolutely and i mean this film um i definitely want to watch the japanese language version of it for sure just to get a calibration of it. And especially because, especially with Ghibli films too, they're, they're cast so specifically. I mean, uh, e even in The Wind Rises, they didn't even hire a, a quote-unquote real actor to play the lead role in that. They hired um, Hideki Anno, who was an animator, to play the lead in that. Because again, Miyazaki just had such a specific vision of how that character needed to sound. Yeah, I guess that's like one of those things in voice acting that, you know, can it's... 
for people who are voice actors, it could be hard where it's like sometimes it's just like, oh, I like, you know, Miyazaki hears this animator speak and it goes, that's the guy, <laughs> you know, and as even though there's like so many voice actors who's like, I could do that voice. And he's like, no, but you're not the guy. <laughs> so, yeah, Robert Pattinson, when he showed up uh, to do his recording, he actually brought his iPhone and his own iPhone had a bunch of recordings that he had spent weeks on. And they were just like, what the fuck? He's already prepared for this this much. Um, so he was just giddy. And like, you know, he plays the recording for them right before he does his official work. And they're like, holy shit, he's already figured it out. And they say they were inspired by Robert Pattinson's role in Good Time. That's what made them uh, pitch the hair into him. And, you know, they were they were expecting it to be a hard sell. And no, he was apparently just giddy with excitement about being able to play a role uh, as nuanced as this one. I would have been so shocked if it wasn't an easy sell for him. Like if it was like, yeah, we really had to work to get him to do it. Like that would have been actually more disappointing. Like I will say this just as like I've really come around from like Robert Pattinson. Like there was a point of time where he was, you know, super loathed. Like, you know, when we were younger and it's like the Twilight saga is coming out and you're just like, oh, this fucking guy. But since like Breaking Dawn part two, like when since Twilight ended, he has been on a roll. And I kind of love the fact that even though Good Time was a movie that like was totally overlooked, like should have been nominated for a lot of awards, like sets up the Safdie brothers who are like creative geniuses, sets up Robert Pattinson as like, oh, this guy's a great, great actor i love that that's now like still going back they're like yeah we need a kind of guy who's gonna do a like a weirdo part well if we did we you know we've we recently rewatched good time <laughs> like i love that good time plays a factor in the, his casting in this movie it's so great absolutely i think that about wraps it up for for spoiler free thoughts um so yeah uh now we're going to get into the recap. Um, thank you very much, dear listener. If you uh... actually, do you have any, like, before we go um, to move on, like, do you know, like, have anything about, like, why, like, how David uh, Batista came into be involved here? Or was it just, like, uh, again, not, not, like... not much. They, they found him and, you know, he was down for it. And they, uh, the IndieWire article that I'm cribbing from uh, considerably. So, you know, thank the folks at IndieWire for. For doing these interviews um they just said that dave batista didn't find the role too hard because he was used to he's used to this work because of his guardians of the galaxy stuff because again he's used to like acting with tennis balls so he was apparently just you know he shows up he does the work robin pattinson this was actually his first voice acting role ever so he had never even done like a, a fucking illumination movie or some bullshit like that yeah, you'd think that he would have done like something by now, but I guess that makes I mean he's only really been on the scene as an actor for like the last like maybe six or seven years. I don't know. Tom Holland has done like a, a Pixar movie and a DreamWorks movie already. <laughs> uh but Tom Holland Tom Holland knows how to cash those checks, I guess. Yeah, but also <clears throat> sorry. Um but also Tom Holland isn't that great of an actor, whereas like Dave Batista used Guardians of the Galaxy and then found his way into like Blade Runner 2049 and he was in uh you know Hotel Artemis and he did you know I guess Army of the Dead and Glass Onion so like you know he's doing he's doing good work and I guess he did a whole season of C on Apple TV but a show I never watched uh, a show I don't think anyone knows exists anymore no uh, that and... show was Jason Momoa you know, running around in a world where everyone was blind, but uh, turns out, yeah, no one watched it. 
yeah uh shout out to florence Pugh though who's also great but yeah she she showed up she did her job um she's great in the film of course yeah i think that concludes the spoiler free thoughts uh go see this movie and then come back this is a movie you have to digest and yeah now we're gonna get into the recap everyone so uh enjoy this so even just the opening man the opening this is a movie we've criticized for its pacing but i don't think the opening is slow by any means we immediately uh open up on uh the uh the year is 1943 there is a hospital fire in tokyo and our main character's mother is burned alive in the first two minutes yeah no i mean we we kind of see it we kind of see a version of it but yeah it's basically it, he's she's at working at a hospital the hospital's been a firebomb during the pacific war and it's implied that she dies during that yeah firebombing. and i mean the way the film portrays it is through kind of an artistic way it's not like gory um it, it it's uh an artistic uh death by immolation but certainly even just the visual style of it is so different from standard ghibli films um the way mojito even moves um when they're trying to escape the fire it, it, he moves almost like a rodent or something i felt yeah yeah there's it's again it's a dream it's a almost dream quality to it because part of it is fantasy like it is part of this like a nightmare that he keeps having about her losing her life this way like her his mom losing her life this way but it also like does work like as a visual like as a great it's a great opening like i think that's the thing there's a lot of movies that sometimes have a slow opening this movie doesn't have that like it's no, just like movie... immediately you walk in you're like oh and i because i didn't know much going into it i was like oh is this like gonna be like kind of like wind rises where it's like almost more realistic like, is this going to be just like almost like almost a horror version of a Studio Ghibli movie? And in some ways it is, but in a lot of ways it's not. <laughs> Most ways it's not. But yeah, it's a great opening, but it's a graphic one. <laughs> For sure. Um, so yeah, his mother is killed in this horrible fire. Um, and then his father, uh, Sho- Shoichi, um, he's an air munitions factory owner. He remarries his wife's uh, younger sister, Natsuko. Um, <laughs> I will say this. I didn't didn't realize that that was the younger sister for until almost like the last until like the last third of the movie. Like there was like a moment where I was like, wait a minute. She's the younger sister. Oh, that's fucked. Like there was a moment there. But I I also go like at that time, I think that was very common because people would like kind of fall in love with each other with through shared grief. And I think that's kind of what happens here. For sure. And and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to doubt that Shoichi uh, loves Natsuko, but also back then, especially marriage was a, a contract too. So again, it's just him going down the list and, and keeping that family line. So yeah, they evacuate to Natsuko's estate. Uh, Natsuko is pregnant, which of course makes uh, Mahito very uncomfortable. The fact that he could be potentially replaced and uh, becoming part of... Uh, you know, he doesn't know his role in this family for sure. And Mojito, I want to say he's not a brat. I mean, obviously, he's a very traumatized individual, but he is certainly not the most likable character in these uh, first 20 minutes, I would say. Um, he's he's very reserved. Um, I, there's, a, there's a moment where his father tells him, it's like, listen, I'm going to drive you around in a car. The kids will love you. And then all the kids just look at him with disdain uh, when he gets to school. And then... yeah. He, 
I mean, I I feel like I there's like sympathy there where it's like, oh yeah, definitely puts almost like a an arrow on your back of like, oh, this is the rich kid, and I assume a lot of those kids, their parents work at the factory that his dad owns. That too. So yeah, it, there's definitely a a power balance that they're not. Uh, it's not that they're not respectful of it, but yeah, there's a disdain for the rich kid for sure. Uh, and then we get this moment of Mojito actually uh, self mutilating himself where he smashes a rock onto his head and you just see the blood gushing out. And that was a moment where the audience, you can just feel the audience squirm when we saw it. Yeah. That one was, yeah, that was a moment where I was like, Oh my God. And again, I think because it comes not too long after the kind of initial like firebombing, like, you know, emulation sequence. Again, I was going like, Oh, like this movie's going to have like these dark moments. And again, it does, but yeah, that was another one where I was like, holy shit. Because, yeah, like, one of the posters that I saw before I saw the movie was you see, you know, you're seeing uh, Mahito with, like, kind of his half of his head shaved and you got the little scar on the side. But you don't know why he has the scar. And, yeah, the fact that this was, like, this sort of self-mutilation, like him hitting himself in the head to cause the bleeding so he would be injured so he didn't have to go to school it is dark it's a dark dark moment and just the way the blood gushes too it, it, it almost gushes like jam uh the the way they portray it and uh the other thing too is this is again a ghibli movie i i did notice some children in our audience and uh i wasn't sure if the parents were like okay this this may have been too much that we brought our child to yeah i could see that like i could i'm gonna be honest i don't know if i would like this movie, like, you probably should be, like, 13 or older. Like, it's kind of, it's it's definitely, like, I think a lot of times people go, like, oh, this movie, it's, you know, Suzu Ghibli, PG. This is definitely, like, PG-13. For sure. And also, I'm not sure if the, the children would necessarily be entertained by it. This is, this is a weirdly paced movie um, about some deeply traumatized individuals. And also the plot, again, like you said, we were we were missing some uh plot connections uh that i didn't even like make until the very end of the film honestly uh especially with uh what happens uh with the mother character but yeah th th this is definitely a film you need to rewatch for one thing i think rewatches of this film will be much more generous i do agree like i think this is gonna i won't benefit like i probably won't see this again in theaters but once it's probably on a netflix type service i'll probably rewatch it just to kind of get a little bit more and like especially maybe the parts i as i alluded to i dozed off <laughs> during um there's also a great moment uh where where mojito's father uh upon finding out that his uh his child's been injured of course you know he thinks these uh bullies have beaten him up and th his first response is to just be like okay i'm just gonna beat the shit out of these kids <laughs> um yeah but, but at the same time like it also kind of shows you the the old school um, ideas of masculinity that Mojito's father has, where he, again he just sees it as like, okay, I'm just going to solve this conflict with violence. Whereas, like, no, your kid is like deeply upset about the death of his mother and also the fact that you've already taken on a new woman. Like, and buddy, had and like basically, yeah, it's that mother has just died. You've now married, you know, you married the sister, and you've got her pregnant. And you're also never around now because you're constantly at the factory. And, and we haven't even really alluded to this, but like, you know, the whole thing is like happening. Like the fire happens in Tokyo. 
but they like moved to like essentially just this giant estate in the countryside where he's like basically isolated and that's like also when one of the big the like the first moments where we start seeing the gray heron start showing up and like kind of taunting mahito yeah so this heron um yeah he's he's taunting mahito and then mahito makes a bow uh with bamboo and also one of the uh arrows of the heron uh that bamboo bow was very cool that whole Um, sequence was really cool i was like shit can i do that with bamboo as well um there's the moment where he finds the book of the novel how do you live which is the uh, official japanese title of this movie um I thought we were going to get a big moment and I, I, you know, props to this film for not doing the obvious thing, even though it would have been very emotionally effective. I thought we were going to get a, uh, Malcolm, you remember Violet Evergarden years ago, which had that whole letter to the, uh, the child from the mother. Yeah. I, I thought we were getting that. And my tears were like already coming up because I was like anticipating. It's like, Oh my God, we're going to get this moment of this big epic handwritten note. And the film, uh, does it much more quietly. It doesn't uh, go as intensely on there. No, it's not as like, it doesn't pile on. And like, maybe that's like, again, the restraint that this movie has. It's like why Miyazaki is, a, you know, a master of this craft because he could have gone and like, all right, time for you, for you to cry, but you don't. And then like, there is a more emotional reunion later where like once uh, Mahito enters kind of this the next the other realm. I don't even know they don't really give it a name. It's like a, like the dream like it's like a parallel dimension, and he like reunites with his mom, but like a younger version is, of his mother. Like you're still like even though it's like emotional, it's still not like I would didn't end up crying. But I also love that with how do you live? Like what's so great about that reference is that for a long time everyone just assumed because that was like the only information about this movie that this was movie was going to be a full on adaption of that novel, which is by Jinza Biro Yoshino. Yeah. Uh, Jinza Biro Yoshino. Yeah. Um, it is a, it follows a 15 year old boy named Junichi Honda and his uncle as the youth deals with spiritual growth, poverty, and the overall experience as human beings. I mean, again, the, the, the title, uh, of that book certainly uh, is a question that this movie proposes, which is how do you live? Um, although I suppose that's a, a common theme of, of many movies. Yeah. There's a part of me that kind of wishes they kept the title to how do you live for the North American version? Like, I do think that would have made a little more sense than the boy and the heron mm-hmm. because like, I think it gives it a little more vagueness, but I get why they went with the boy and the heron for this because it does it also does work they actually considered another another title which was called the grand tower and they wisely uh did not do that because they were like okay that just sounds way too traditional fantasy the boy yeah i like the boy in the heron i was against it when it was first revealed i think i texted you and complained about it as one does when any new ideas are introduced to to someone your first response is to of course be like no i don't like that taking me back to what i was used to but it has grown on me uh, I do actually like the title quite a bit. No, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I do like it too. Like, it's not a bad title. Like, that's the thing. It's not a bad title, but I do think, like, there's such an obvious reference to this novel, How Do You Live, that it also makes sense. But now I guess it, it opens up the opportunity for, like, an actual ad, like, a North American adaptation of the novel, How Do You Live? <laughs> so, 
who knows? You never, I feel like you could see like some streaming service, like trying to capitalize on the fact that how do you live kind of had a bit of a resurgency of popularity from being an obscure novel, Japanese novel published in 1937 to like, Oh, now we're going to do an adaptation for max or Netflix or something. <laughs> but um, I digress. So anyways, Natsuko, uh, she ends up disappearing and uh, one of the maids uh, tells her, tells Mojito that they last saw her uh, near this tower. So Mojito, he goes to the, he goes towards this tower. Uh, the heron tells him if he goes there, he can find his mother. Uh, the heron does not appear to be a trustworthy character. So, of course, you as the audience are like, uh, is this really going to be the right thing? And also, this is a Ghibli movie, so... Of course, we're about to uh, enter a world of fantasy by entering a, another dimension. Um, then uh, one of the maids, Kiriko, she joins Mahito on this journey. They enter the tower. Um, and when Mahito tries to, to shoot the arrow at the heron, uh, the, the arrow actually follows the heron because I guess it had... Um, the fact that it used his feathers gave it some form of uh, ability to, to track him. Again, this is fucking dream logic. Yeah, they don't uh, really explain it, but it's a very cool sequence with like the arrow and following the heron. And which also it turns out the heron is not just like a heron, but it's like kind of like a man in a heron costume or co he was like part man, part heron. Like he keeps like you see his like his mouth and his eyes like in the mouth, like in the beak of the heron. Um, as it like progresses that we also kind of skipped over once like two things one is that like the maids in the movie when they're like on the estate are like these like very small old japanese like women they're like very like almost like yeah they're very danny devito like yeah. they're like you know like Rhea perlman like it's just like that kind of style um they're like almost dwarves but they're not necessarily and then there was also a sequence before, like, the maid goes in, like, with the maid and the boy, Mahito, go into the tower. Is that there's, like, another tower sequence where Mahito is kind of called upon by the heron to, like, try to, like, get into this one, like, section that's a little, like, both, it's been blocked off. Like, there's this whole building on the estate that you can't get into. And he he kind of finds this area where he could kind of squeeze himself because he's being, like, he's following the heron feathers. But one thing I noticed is like after like he can't get in, and the maid's find him. He like goes back to the like estate, like the regular house. But like one thing is he was like tracking the feathers, and all the feathers disappear except for this one feather that he uses for the arrow. The maids remind me of the seven dwarfs too. That's the vibes I got when I first saw them. Yeah, they're like the seven dwarfs, but they're all obsessed with like getting tobacco. Yeah, that's the other thing too. Kiriko is constantly um, asking Mahito where she can get some smokes. <laughs> Which again, this is something you can't even see in American media anymore, which is smoking cigarettes, which is very unfortunate. Uh, especially not a, a PG rated material. No, not at all. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's like that's one of those cultural things, like outside of like you're, you see it in crime movies or high stuff or like, yeah, things with an R rating. It's like you can smoke in a horror movie, but like, you know, you can't, you're not supposed to smoke in anything like, yeah, PG-13 or under. Yeah, let's get into the alternate world. Uh, Unle unless it's like, you're like, smoking's bad, don't do that. <laughs> like it's, uh... Uh, let's get into the alternate world. Um, unfortunately, 
this being a film we saw in theaters, we couldn't take notes. So this is the part where the recap, I think we're just going to kind of have to, you know, it's going to be like dream logic. We might be going in and out of continuity. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, I think anyone listening to this, you know, uh, at least at the time of the recording should know that, yeah, that we saw this in theaters and that there's this isn't like on a streaming platform as of, you know, December 2023. Yeah, we, we couldn't take specific notes. So especially now as we get into the plot, there are going to be things that are out of order or misremembered because uh, I was not going to be the asshole uh, going on notes in my phone during this. <laughs> Yeah, or having a pen and paper being like, I won't have the globe. I just hear so hearing like the scratching of a pen. Shit. Fuck man, I could have pulled that off. Maybe I should have done that. But again, I would I would have been looking at my pen and paper and not the Well, that's movie. it. I wanted to experience the movie. And I think this is what you know is makes this kind of interesting uh as a like an episode to record of this podcast is the fact that yeah, we're now just gonna talk about it as you know, two guys who saw the movie. <laughs> like as just yeah. Um, I think because so th- yeah. Oh, oh, go on. Maybe you had. A oh, because I was just gonna say like because I think the things we're gonna talk about are the things that we remember and what seem important in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk Kariko, the younger version of her. Um, Florence Pugh, she voices both the old lady Kariko and the younger version. Um, she's dope. You know, she's again. It's it's kind of funny because a lot of Ghibli films are known for their female protagonists. This having a male protagonist is actually a bit of an outlier, almost especially like the most famous ones like Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away and all that. Um, but it was nice to have like, again, another just powerful female character like, uh, I guess, the dream world version of Kariko, who's just this badass seafarer. Yeah, like that was one of those things that I, I love that like in the another world, you know, she's because like she is really competent as this maid of this estate. But it's like, yeah, it's that thing of she's almost like the current circumstances that she's in make it so that you know maybe she's not living up to her true potential because she is very like astute because like her character very on is very early on is established as kind of the leader of the maids and it is always constantly like she knows what's going on she like she's spying on Mahito and is like oh man you know he at one point he like steals some smokes to give to the groundskeeper so that he can like basically help him sharpen the arrow and like she's watching it being like are you kidding me And then also, like, she's the one who, like, early on is like, you don't want to go in here. Like, this is not worth it. Like, this is too much. Like, this is going to be too much. But then, obviously, it's revealed that she needed to be in the dream world and that she's actually way more – she's almost more competent in the dream world than in the real world. She was fantastic. We also get the Wara 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 characters who are, like, these cute little white uh, orbs, I guess. I don't know what you would call them. Oh yeah, the war. Yeah, the Wara Wara. They're the only thing like I noticed that like the Wara Waras. Yeah, they're like little like I don't know like they're little they're like little doughboys. <laughs> like they're little like they're like you, know, you just want to poke them. And they go <laughs> like that's kind of how I viewed it. Very adorable. They're gonna sell a lot of Wara Wara except, merchandise. Except don't they also get like uh, they're not incinerated? I think it's um, who was it? Uh, well, they're first of all they're eaten by the. <laughs> the parakeets at one point and then they're also yeah they're kind of incinerated so that they can kind some of them can survive because it's implied that the Wara Wara are future people oh, okay i didn't even pick up on that like that's kind of what they are they're supposed to be and then like as they go into like the next realm that's where like you know they're basically souls i think like i kind of viewed it as almost like they were like 
sperm. Like there were just like a lot of little, but I could be wrong in terms of that. Like that, like they're not actually, that's just like that kind of like metaphor. But it's also, they never cast an American or like, yeah, like a English Wara Wara. It's the Wara Wara, like it's the same voice actress from the Japanese version as the English version. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they're really speaking words either, though. Yeah, but you can tell there's probably one, like, big actor who is like, I couldn't have fucking done the War of War. Why couldn't I have done it? <laughs> For sure. Um, you know, Bill Hader or someone who's like, fuck it. I, I voiced BB-8. I can do this shit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, imagine if it's like Andy Samberg. <laughs> I know. I mean, Dan Stevens, again, is the guy who who gets the, uh, he, he voices one of the parakeets. He has literally three lines, and that's it. And uh, he did that only because uh, he wanted to see an early cut of a Ghibli movie. <laughs> I mean, which, again, it's, which is kind of incredible. He's good. He, those three lines are good, man. He he plays that uh, giant parakeet very well. Oh, I was going to say, it's also like uh, Tony uh, Revolori uh, from the Grand Budapest Hotel and the French Dispatch. He And he's Flash Thompson in Spider-Man. He was also one of the parakeets. Uh, and that's also, he was also, he's a very good actor too. But yeah, Dan Stevens, it just seems like he's a guy who probably was like the second, he almost got the gray hair in and then Robert Pattinson showed up with his, you know, 50,000 voice notes and was like, well, Robert's got the part, yeah. Dan. Uh, the parakeets are fucking hilarious. I mean, yeah, they're, they're going to go down certainly as an iconic uh, Ghibli creation because yeah, they're just these fat you know, six foot tall parakeets. Uh, they carry like uh, butcher knives and shit. <laughs> yeah. They're also like kind of, they're hungry for humans. They're like, there's all these like great sequences where it's like, like they're like co- cooking up this giant feast with like uh, mojito supposed to be like the main, I guess, part of the meal. Like it's, yeah. it's like not cannibalism because they are parakeets, but it's also like, I don't think, I think of par. I've never thought of parakeets before this movie and gone like, they really want, they really crave the the taste of human flesh. <laughs> like it's like, it's a, an absurd idea in this. And again, kind of hovering towards that horror element. That, like there's a whole sequence where Mahito is like wakes up and he's chained against a wall and this guy is like sharpening a knife in a kitchen and like you're just cutting to like this giant like, almost like ballroom of parakeets like cutting up watermelon and different kinds of like vegetables getting ready for this like feast and you're like what the hell <laughs> like visually incredible because like all the parakeets are like all these nice you know bright colors but then it's like the, you realize the darkness of what's about to happen if he doesn't escape yeah 100 percent uh what was the other thing too so we should mention there's a young girl named himi she's the one who's able to, to light herself aflame um, and just fuck it. Let's just get into spoiler territory because we're oh, yeah, we're already in spoiler territory. <laughs> she's his mom. She's his fucking mom. And I felt like an idiot when that was revealed because like I was almost like shit. Did they like not? Did, was that already revealed? The way she, the way it's revealed is so nonchalant. It's done again. Any other filmmaker would have played that reveal moment up like a massive big deal, and instead she just says it in like a pretty quick line of dialogue. I felt. I don't know. How do you feel about how that reveal happened? I mean, I kind of knew, like, knew it. Yeah. I wasn't surprised by it because of like the fire powers. But like even... she, like she made, like, like I was kind of going like, oh, it's fire powers. The mom died of fire. There's already like, imp- like there was also this thing of like grand uncle. Like in the beginning of when you f- see the grand uncle, there's like this opening sequence we kind of alluded to with the arrow. 
that like you see this like mysterious shadowed figure at this top of this like giant tower looking down being like you know telling the gray hair and it's like enough like we have to stop this and then it's like later on it's revealed to be the grand uncle and i was like in that moment i sort of looked at it i was like i think that might be like this grand uncle like the one who went because like there's also this myth of like the grand uncle went missing and no one's figured out where he went very and like and he basically was like oh he like was reading a book and then he was gone and there's a, like a moment with mojito where he did the same thing where he's reading how do you live leaves it to a page and then he ends up disappearing into the next realm and so like i think there's that and i kind of found i was like i'm sure there's going to be something related here but i wasn't like a hundred percent sure until they finally like nailed it down yeah and i just mean though just the way even the moment is portrayed is like so quick that that was kind of the thing that shook i was waiting for the big cry moment in this movie um because actually literally the last thing we covered on this podcast um not with you but with another person jackson barwise was suzumi which is uh from makoto shinkai which again makoto shinkai is a person who's been uh in my opinion incorrectly compared to miyazaki i think they're very different filmmakers but uh his film suzumi definitely knows how to uh perfectly calibrate the cry moments like uh when they happen you're just like fuck you this was like perfectly 100 percent time to do that so yeah i don't know i'm kind of just rambling but like i was expecting that big moment and instead miyazaki to his credit just kind of runs past it i feel i don't know that's how that's how i felt at least i don't know if you have a different take yeah no i i see that like i kind of it's it's like restraint he's like no i'm not gonna take the easy option even if you know that does is yeah, the most think, uh pleasing moment to the audience you know yeah no they for sure and like they, maybe that is like kind of the flaw of this movie like why it's not a perfect movie is that like i wanted like this like more emotional movie i don't know if there's like a cultural element that kind of like restrains that or if it's just also miyazaki going like i don't want my final movie to be like a farewell letter in, in a traditional sense. And I keep saying final, but I'm putting an asterisk next to it because he's still alive and there's like been reports that he's got an idea for another project. But yeah. we'll see. But he is 81 and we'll see if he like makes it or not. Now you know, that they're I, saying I think it's seven years, I could see him it's, if this movie took seven years, I'm like, well, 88. I mean, that's old, but it's doable. Yeah, like 88 is definitely like you can, there are like a lot of people who, you know, there are a lot of filmmakers who are making it, you know, to their 90s. I mean, you look at like Clint Eastwood's making a movie, Juror Number Two, and he's like almost 100. You know, Norman Lear just died as of recording, and he was like 103 or 104, and he was like still producing TV shows, like, like sitcoms, basically to the day he died. So, like, I think. There's definitely a possibility, but like, this is this could be the last one. But I also think there's a very good reality where, like, even if he starts something, that there would be enough material that they would probably finish it. Like his son Goro would probably go on and be like, "All right, time to finish this movie that my dad started." You're not familiar with Goro's work, so uh, unfortunately, that's. uh, I've I've heard he's not good. I've heard he's. it's, It's one of the saddest fucking things about Goro. Like I haven't watched his movies. I think I'm, you know, maybe I'll watch Tales from the Earth Sea, because um, that's the premise at least sounds appealing to me. I don't know how it could be bad, but maybe I'll I'll come to the realization from watching it. Um, 
But it, yeah, it, it is very sad that Goro has this bad reputation. And even Miyazaki seems like Miyazaki's like, you know, maybe you just don't have to do this. Maybe you can do something else. Yeah, it's like one of those things where like, I think when you're like the son or daughter of someone who's like considered a master of like a particular field, it's like, I know it's very easy to be like, I'll just do what my dad's doing or my mom's doing. But sometimes it's like a bigger move to be like, I'm actually not going to do that. Yeah, fair. Poor guy. Um, uh, the whole parakeet thing. First of all, Dave Batista as the parakeet uh, king. Great casting. Again, this is me kind of poking holes at the movie. And I hate doing this, especially for a film that I know I'm going to rewatch and maybe have a different opinion on. I do kind of wish the parakeet king was in the movie earlier. Because when he appears, it, it it's played like a big deal, but I didn't really know the character at all. And he has maybe 10 minutes of screen time. And the decisions he makes, I understand the decisions he makes, but again, you just don't spend enough time with that character to, to really care, if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah, no, there, it's, I do agree. Like there, there's like an element where he kind of shows up to the movie too late. Yeah. Like he should have been in the movie a lot earlier. Even just like, like I, one or two scenes just to set him up. Yeah, because he's kind of a villain and like he's got there's like this whole thing of like the parakeets and the parakeet king. He's gonna like he's gotta deal with the grand uncle to like keep the world in balance and like to keep them happy. But then yeah, it's just like that's another part of the movie that kind of falls apart a bit where I'm just like, Am I I feel like I'm missing something that like there's like a, a yeah, like you said, like about two scenes, like too short. Like it just like it need he needed a like a little bit more of like why are the parakeets like why do the parakeets have this king and like what makes the his relationship with the granduncle like important also shout out to the buyers uh those are just another great you know one scene wonder character i love um who are the people like these ghostly apparitions who who buy fish from uh kiriko oh yeah those that was a really cool design yeah like those yeah those were really interesting yeah because they, they it says that the buyers can't they can't kill so they have they rely on other people who can to like basically feed themselves yeah i thought they were just neat again this is typical miyazaki and ghibli where you just have these these characters who are on screen for maybe 30 seconds total and they just stand out to you um, what else is there? So yeah, let's talk the grand uncle. So he asks Mahito to take over the job of maintaining this world. And he explains that someone, uh, only someone blood related and free of malice can do so. And Mahito chooses to instead return to his own world to be with the people who love him, despite the world's hardships. And he notes because of his head wounds, it shows that he himself is not free from malice. Um, having not known about the whole Takahata relationship, uh, prior to watching this film, the grand uncle, at least in that scene to me, felt like Miyazaki uh, talking to like his children or grandchildren and just being like, you know, this is the legacy that you could take. And then them, of course, uh, not quite rejecting it. I don't think I don't think Mahito fully rejects it, because, again, at the end of the film, we see that he still has a piece of it. Uh, but it's just him taking the lessons he learned from this adventure, but doing it his own way. Yeah, no, that's kind of it. Like that's a great way of kind of phrasing or contextualizing it. Because yeah, it's that thing of like, I'm not just going to be a successor, but I need to do it my own way. And like the way that you know his the granduncle did it, it worked for the granduncle. But even the granduncle is struggling. And like 
he, you know, Mahito's like, I'm not, you know, he's like, I'm not, I think the phrase is like, he's like, you know, he's not full, you know, like he's got malice, like they're like, because he's like, oh, don't you want a world without malice and without, you know, suffering, like you can make a perfect world. And he just kind of goes like, no, I need to like live a life and like feel things and have people feel things. Cause like, that's kind of a part of like that theme, which is like, how do you live? And like, part of living is that you're going to feel happiness and you're going to feel sadness and you're going to feel suffering and you're going to feel adulation. You're going to feel comfort. You're going to feel discomfort. Uh, and it's like, what's, yeah. Like, cause then what's the point if everything's just perfect all the time. There's another great moment uh, we went over because again, we're, we're, we're just going by memory without our notes. Um, but when Mojito and um, Himi, when they open the door to the tower the first time um, and the budgies all come out and uh, his father sees him, uh, when the budgies go from again, being like these fat humanoid birds to then just, you know, shitting on his father. I thought that was fucking hilarious. That was a very funny moment. But that was also like this crazy moment where, you know, like the father still doesn't really know what's going on. And you can see that like, because I think it's that the father's not, it's that this is all related to the mothers and the sister, right? Like that's the grand uncles, like basically a, their descendant from that side, mm-hmm. not from the father's side. Because that explains why the sister, and like the, the sisters or like the mother and, you know, the stepmother, like Mahito's mother and stepmother are kind of on the other side. But yeah, there's that great moment. And then I love that it was like that tension of he's holding on to the door and it's like, if you let go of this door, you will never be able to find it again or something along those lines. And he has to stay there and then he goes back in. Even though like both sides at that moment, there's like a big conflict. Like you've got like the parakeets coming to like looking to kill and you've got the the father who's also just like so desperate to have his son back it's really interesting yeah and again the father who who is an old school dude whose first response is violence yeah um, also true that's his whole thing and i mean he's not portrayed violent in like um an abusive way he's not an abusive character but again it's just that's the world he comes from where he's you know action first emotion second again i like that character he's not it could have been very easy to make that father figure an abusive character and instead he's just misguided he 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 does love his son he's just uh making some choices that aren't great and maybe not the most thoughtful anyways the whole parakeet king he tries to usurp the grand uncle's power uh that's what results in the alternate world collapsing it's here where uh, mahito offers to take himi to his world but then it's here where himi reveals that she is just a younger version of hisako and that she and Kariko must return to their own time to ensure that Mahito will be born. And, that, and that's the other thing about the continuity of this film. So we're told that Hisaka, when she was younger, she had actually disappeared for a year. And this was after the tower, which was formed when a meteorite struck the ground. So that's the interesting thing about this. Um, there's a tendency with a lot of these spirit movies where it's like, oh, this was all a dream. But no, this world like existed. The the character yeah. did like literally disappear for a year. She experienced these events. You know, when when she entered that world, she literally did get to spend time with her son. This all fucking happened. Yeah, I know exactly. And like she says, like at the very end of the movie, when they're going through their own doors, she's just like, "I'm not going to be afraid of the fire." And it kind of explains why there's that sequence with the fire where she's like not screaming. <clears throat> she's not. You know, she's not like almost in fear. Like she's like, there's like almost like a tranquility to that moment that like you don't necessarily pick up on 
the first time you see it, but like looking back on it and they kind of show it a little bit. You see it, you're like, oh, oh, like she knew she this was going to happen. Like she knew that the day was going to come and she was going to die in this like fire. At, you know, she, but she didn't know kind of when. And it's, yeah, it's Again, this is the fun thing about doing the podcast with this context because like, you know, I didn't even give my Instagram review of this movie because I was just like, shit, I need to fucking digest this. Like, I need to chew on this, man. Yeah. Uh, we're I, all kind I, of figuring out the movie right now. Yeah, like, the part of it's like, it's a bit of a, yeah, like a post-game almost, like post-game notes as we're like, going like, oh yeah, we just saw this, we experienced this. And like, I love the the story of this, like the tower that, um, which is that, they initially say that like the grand uncle built it and they kind of a fur and then there's all these like tunnels and that's why they had to close it off. But I loved the reveal that it basically just like fell from the sky one day and then it was there. And then they, you know, one of the grand uncles, I think descended like his, his son was basically like, make sure no one goes in. Like, like everyone was really freaked out about it, especially because the grand uncle went missing. Oh yeah, because that's what like the entered. thing too. They say like his, his books rotted his mind or something. Yeah, that was the thing. They were like, oh, he was okay. so smart and he read so many books that like, yeah, basically like turned him into like, yeah, nothing. But really in reality, it's that he like entered this other realm and was able to like, control everything. I think we can definitely confirm dear listener that you have to watch this movie twice and do it, you know, watch the dub and then watch the Japanese. That's the proper way of experiencing this. Probably, yeah. There's like a part of me where it's like we talked a little bit where uh, we're both in Vancouver and it, it was the Vancouver International Improv, or not Improv, but the International uh, Film Festival and they had a screening of this. And the dub wasn't even completed when that screening happened. No, so it would have been like, it would have been good to see that like the Japanese version, like the uh, the subs and then yeah. like gone to watch the, the dub a few like weeks later. Although in fairness, that screening was impossible to get tickets for and there was like lines around the corner for people trying to get in they could have done like 15 screenings <laughs> of that movie oh for and sure. probably still been turning people away absolutely yeah i guess uh that wraps up the movie i did like uh also because again all the animals uh they 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 turn into real normal animals at the very end of the movie i love the look of the parakeet king when he turns into his uh regular parakeet form i thought that was adorable yeah i also should say that like at the end of the movie there's like these two parakeets that are like there's like a whole sequence with like uh i think yeah lady Hemi, who's like basically they're like defeated at one point and then she's like in this like i guess i describe it's like almost like coffin but it's like clear and they're like carrying her around and they're carrying her to like the grand uncle and the two there's the two parakeets and they're just like going through like what is essentially paradise like a version of heaven and they're like crying like they're just constantly crying because they're like it's so beautiful oh my god i can't believe it and the parakeet king is just so like unimpressed by it because he's like on this like mission and i don't know it was such a great like juxtaposition i was thinking about it like you know like that power of like when you have too much power you don't like there's like leaders who don't appreciate the beauty of what they've built or like what they're experiencing in that moment. It was like just seeing it through those like parakeets eyes of just like, Oh my God, look at this. This, this is like, this is everything I've always hoped it was going to be. Cause they were like supposed to be just peasants who like never experienced anything like this. So that was just a side note to it. And then, yeah, once they become like these, again, these big fat 
fucking birds and then become like the little regular parakeets we all know and love. It's a great moment too. I love it. And yeah, the, the movie ends with uh, Mahito moving back to Tokyo with his family. And again, the, the ending isn't like a big ending ending. I think even when it, the credits happen, we're like, oh shit, is that it? That's how I felt at least. And again, like it, it is, it is a tight two hours. You are left wanting more, but yeah, no, like you could have, there's again a moment where it's like, you could have added another 20 minutes to this movie. And I don't think anyone would be complaining. There are, again, there's, there was probably a couple of scenes with the parakeet king that they could have added. But that being said, like, I did like it even like two years later, we moved back to the city and it's like, you see like, you know, Mahito and he's got his, you know, now his younger half brother kind of walking around and like, he seems happy. His hair's grown back. You don't see the scar anymore. Like he seems to have been able to like make peace and move on from the tragedy that he kind of suffered with his mom dying. You also like kind of see like, you know, like there's also like implication of like the the man, like the gray heron or the man in the gray heron or like whatever you want to describe that being, because it is kind of almost like there's like a, it's almost like Danny DeVito in a gray heron costume. Like I can't, I don't know how to describe it. Like, yeah. You just see it's like a human head keep popping in and out of this heron. You know, like he's kind of like back to being a heron. But it's also implied that he's still like probably one of the few like magical beings from that world who like didn't fully change back into like, oh, a parakeet, um, which I think was also really interesting. And again, Mahito's holding one of these pieces because there's this whole sequence about like balancing blocks to make everything work and the fact that grand uncle is you know he's fading away and he needs a successor like i don't know it's just all like adds up and i feel like i'm not doing the best job of describing things obviously in a linear sense but this movie's not linear in that way too no absolutely um i yeah again it's me trying to figure out where i even place it among the ghibli canon i think i you know, I, I'm the person who infamously didn't love Spirited Away, and I even said as much on the podcast for the rewatch of it. I think I would put this above Spirited Away now that I'm thinking about this. Um, Spirited Away has even more visual delights just because of the nature of that film. But I don't know. The more we're talking about this film, the more I like it. Again, the first time you watch it, you're just going to probably have a similar reaction to Anthony and a lot of other people, which is that was some trippy ass shit. <laughs> but I think once you process it and uh, consume it and start to think about it, and I know some people don't like to think that's the issue. Um, again, yeah. Well, I, people I, need to start thinking it again. All right. We can't all just be on our phones being like watching TikTok, the same TikTok dances made by the same 22 year olds. Like we got to do more. Right. I think like we really got to do more. I, I look back on you and I's reaction to once upon a time in Hollywood, where we both clearly were weren't sure of the movie and i think i even said it was like a seven out of ten and then i rewatched and like nah this movie fucking rules just, yeah i had i had the same thing where i was like walked away going like uh what did i think of that and then yeah did another rewatch and i will you know be on the record of saying like we gotta like that movie's yeah that movie that's a that's a two viewing uh minimum for that type of movie yeah and this feels like it's in a similar category Let's get into our favorite segment. Uh, who's the Speedwagon? Cue the music.
So for those just joining in, the Speedwagon is our favorite supporting character from the film. I'll go first. Uh, my Speedwagon are the buyers. Again, they're the perfect Speedwagon. They're, they have maybe 20, 30 seconds of screen time. They're cool as hell. They're concept rules. Uh, I thought there'd be more of them. I, I mean, even the Wara Wara, we don't see the Wara Wara for, for that much. They're in the movie for maybe two or three minutes tops. But that's how Ghibli does it. They love the uh, one se- the uh, one scene wonders here. Yeah, I mean, I think like that's it's a perfect. They're a great choice. Like they're probably would be my choice, but I'll just change it up and just go like my Speedwagon is the Wara Wara. Like I think like you can basically it's a toss up between the buyers and the Wara Wara for the Speedwagon. They're just like both so visually interesting. They have these like moments that like you know for the buyers they set up the world. For the Wara Wara, again, there's like this great whole sequence with them and how they're important and there's like implications that they're they're like people, they're gonna be future people. They're just in it, but they're a little they're adorable. Like they're I like I'm I don't even know how to like who what kind of characters you would compare them to, but like the they're just little like ghosts. They're little like hug ghosts. They almost look like Pokemon. Like that kind they of do, felt. yeah. They, there, there's definitely a maybe there'll be a Pokemon inspired by the Warwar in a in a later game. All right, final thoughts on the boy and the heron. Um, like I say, I really enjoyed this movie. It's a film I will I will continue to think about and under, understand. It's definitely not a a film where the first viewing is sufficient. I look forward to its uh, re-release on streaming where I can uh, watch it in Japanese and just. Again, that's the interesting thing about voice acting because, again, like the Miyazaki in particular is so particular about who he casts that, like, listen, there's plenty of media where I'll just like watch the English dub because that's easier. Uh, and then sometimes if the uh, the show doesn't have a dub yet, I'll obviously watch the the Japanese. But yeah, this again, the Ghibli, you know, the Ghibli movies, the Miyazaki movies in particular, it's like there's there's very specific casting choices. And uh, it definitely makes me excited to watch the uh, the Japanese version of it. I don't know. This movie's great. You're watching me and Malcolm. You're you're listening to me and Malcolm process it in real time. What can I say? Yeah, I think like very few movies that are like media that you kind of feel that way, like doing like an instant, like almost an instant analysis of what we watched. I feel like this is similar to like, you know, when the ringer does like, you know, they've watched the series finale of succession and they're just kind of rambling their way through, uh, they're, you know, and it's like, that's how I kind of feel here. It's a great movie. I, like I said, I think it's going to be, uh, Oscar. This is the front runner for a best animated film at the Oscars this year, in my opinion. And I think it'll be an upset if they lose. Uh, I think there's also, there's so much in this movie as well. Like there's so much, the, the, um, there's an emotional depth here that yeah, isn't necessarily like, Oh, you're going to cry your eyes out, but it like makes you really feel and think. Uh, and I really do love that. They, you know, ask this big questions, like how do you live? And like, and applied that question to such an interesting cerebral world that was so colorful. Yeah, there's like so dark, it's like these moments that go, you know, like just bounces between the fantastical and like this dark horror aspect. Because there's like also we we even talked about there's like this whole sequence with like with the uh, the stepmother, uh, I believe it was like Natsuko, and she's like basically she gets ill and then she wanders into the like basically the tower 
and Mahito has to find her. And she's like, I guess she's like giving birth or something. And there's like this whole sequence where she's sick and like he's trying to like get to her and she's screaming, I hate you, I hate you. And there's all this like paper, like it almost like mummifies Mahito, like in the way of like actual like the mummy style. And he's like trying to push his way through to connect with her because like it's the first time in the movie where like you realize it's like he doesn't hate her. He's like starting to accept that like what life is and you know his reality and like what the future is going to be. And it's like again, it's a great sequence. We didn't even talk about it, <laughs> you know. It's, it's so good. There's so many more moments. Like I'm sure there's going to be people listening to this who go like, you didn't talk about this thing, <laughs> like you know, because there's a lot of that here. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't have much more to say. We, it, this has been an interesting podcast to record for sure. And I hope you, dear listener, are satisfied uh, with how we how we did our, you know, again, we, we saw this movie less than tw- 24 hours ago. I can officially confirm it because we saw it at 3.30 and it's 2.25 right now. So this is under 24 hours uh, since uh, viewing it. Anyways, Malcolm, where can people find you? Oh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Malcolm RJ McLeod. I'm also technically on Twitter under the same handle and Blue Sky, but I'm not a, I'm not really using Blue I, Sky. I got Blue Sky and then I, I made a Blue Sky account and I just didn't do anything with it. It's like, oh, yeah, it's very hard to go viral on Blue Sky right now. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. yeah, and yeah, so find me. You'll uh, on Instagram, you'll see updates about what I'm doing uh, writing wise, comedy wise. You know, yeah, all that fun stuff. Fantastic. Uh, you can find me at uh, Jack is Jack on Instagram, only real Jack M on Twitter. Uh, find at is this anime pod on Instagram. That's about it. Leave a review, leave some Instagram reviews. That's always fun because it, or not Instagram, not Instagram. I mean, Spotify. We need some Spotify rankings. That would be fun. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, uh, dear listener. I'll try to get an episode out before the new year. Obviously, getting guests is a, uh, can be a challenge especially around christmas time but uh we'll see we'll see anyways if this is the last one of the year not last one ever if this is the last one of the year certainly a worthy one to end on uh so thank you for listening and i'm sure malcolm has his uh and remembered prepared (laughs) yeah oh well that's uh that does it for another episode of this is anime uh and remember uh wara wara pickle pickle uh the great heron will live forever bye (laughs) 